We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary. Hey, everybody. I don't know if you saw this, but over the past few days, the legislatures in Georgia and Alabama have both effectively voted to ban a woman's right to choose, even in the cases of rape and incest. That's a huge deal with so many major ramifications. And today I'm going to unpack and explain precisely what each state voted for. What I really want to explain is how we got here and what can be done about it. Now, I have the philosophy that we can organize ourselves out of any problem that we find ourselves in. But what I see is that our organization rarely matches our outrage. Let's dig in. This is Sean King, and you are listening to... The, the, the Breakdown. The, 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 the Breakdown. The, 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 the Breakdown. Today's episode is a super serious one, and hell, I know they're all serious, but today I need to teach you something. And I hope if you're listening and you're pro-choice or pro-life that you learn something today, because what I often see in this country is that we quote laws and we mention historic precedents without really even understanding them. So please just give me a moment before we begin talking about what's happening in Georgia and Alabama. Please give me a moment to unpack one of the most important Supreme Court cases ever decided. I'm talking about Roe versus Wade. Let me break it down. Break it down. In 1973, the United States Supreme Court, in their Roe v. Wade ruling, determined that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment gives people making decisions about their health a right to privacy. And that that right to privacy included women opting to have abortions. Now, this decision was not open-ended. Roe v. Wade gave states the option to offer some regulations when it pertains to issues of health health for both the woman and of the fetus. Now, the decision also split their ruling about abortions into three trimesters of their pregnancy. This is according to the original Roe v. Wade ruling in 1973. In the first trimester, states cannot prohibit abortions. In the second trimester, states can't prohibit them, but they do have the power to regulate the procedure in some very specific ways. Then, according to Roe v. Wade of 1973, in the third trimester, abortions can be prohibited and regulated entirely, except in the case of the life or death of the health of the mother. And then the justices did something really, really important. In their ruling, Roe v. Wade of 1973, they specifically stated that a woman's right to choose was a fundamental human right. That word fundamental is a quote a fundamental human right, and that states that challenged Roe versus Wade had to follow the letter of the case with, quote, strict scrutiny, which is the highest level of judicial review this nation offers. Now, that was 46 years ago that Roe versus Wade was decided. And if that version of Roe versus Wade still stood today, what Alabama and Georgia have just done, 
effectively making it a violent crime for a woman to have an abortion. If Roe versus Wade of 1973 was still case law as it was originally written, those laws in Georgia and Alabama would be struck down immediately. It'd be easy. But that's the thing. Roe versus Wade has been challenged hundreds of times. And in 1992, in one of those cases, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that case made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And in their decision, again, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the Supreme Court actually struck down major parts of Roe versus Wade, including the entire trimester protections that they detailed out. Now, they still upheld a woman's right to choose, but only in the case of a non-viable fetus. That is a, and when they say non-viable fetus, that's a fetus that could survive outside of the womb, which the justices actually stated in that case that they thought they likely began around 23 to 24 weeks of pregnancy. So we talk a lot and we hear a lot about Roe versus Wade. And literally, as I'm recording this, Roe versus Wade is trending right now on Twitter. It was the top trending topic. And people are saying, hey, you can't tell a woman she doesn't have the right to choose because we have Roe versus Wade. But listen, you can't really understand Roe versus Wade without discussing Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And since that case in 1992, the Supreme Court has had multiple other decisions, many of them, most of them, referencing Roe versus Wade or Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Most of them were 5-4 decisions, either upholding some parts of Roe versus Wade or striking down minor provisions in it. Now, I need us to have just a moment of honest clarity about Roe versus Wade for a few minutes because... A lot of us, we hear Roe versus Wade and we believe or we we think it is uh, the Supreme Court decision that banned abortions and, and that's right to a degree. But I need you to understand a couple of things. When it was decided in 1973, hundreds of legal scholars and not just conservative legal scholars, hundreds of legal scholars really pushed back and thought it was a flimsy decision. Now, many of them thought it was a flimsy decision because it purely is based really on the 14th Amendment and this due process clause in the 14th Amendment that gives us a right to privacy. And many people felt like, okay, I understand your interpretation, but using that for abortion is a stretch. And it wasn't just, again, conservative legal scholars that thought that. I mean, there were many scholars that just felt like, I'm not sure that your legal justification in Roe versus Wade is going to stand the test of time. And that's part of why cases have been able to eat away at the strengths and some of the provisions of Roe versus Wade year after year after year is, I I mean, I understand the interpretation of the due process clause giving people the right to privacy and that when a woman makes a private decision about what's going on in her body, that she does not have to get permission for that decision to be made by anybody else. And so I understood what they were thinking there, but I need you to understand that for generations, people have not always felt like Roe versus Wade was a super strong decision, which takes me all the way back, not to 1973 when Roe versus Wade was decided, not to 1992 when we see the decision of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which stripped away some of the strengths of Roe versus Wade, But I need to take you back to 2016 
in the final year of the Obama administration. In February of 2016, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia suddenly died and his death left a vacancy on the court. With 10 full months left in his presidency, President Obama nominated a man named Merrick Garland to fill the vacancy. You may remember this. And the power to nominate a Supreme Court justice, it's one of the most important privileges of the American presidency. And for 10 months, the Republicans in the Senate blocked the nomination. Not because Garland was liberal. He wasn't. I didn't even like Merrick Garland. He was moderate and he made several decisions that I really hated. And that's actually why Obama nominated him, because nominating Merrick Garland for the justice position really exposed that what Republicans were doing had little to do with whether or not Obama's choice was liberal or conservative, because Merrick Garland was very moderate. It really had everything to do with two things. The first was Republicans simply wanted to deny Obama this choice, this power, this privilege, Because they made it clear verbally, out loud. They said it expressly. They made it clear that they would oppose, they would oppose Obama at every turn. And they made that clear soon after he was elected. And the second thing they were trying to do by blocking this nomination is is that they understood, they knew, Republicans knew that whoever that justice would be, that that justice would likely sway the court on Roe versus Wade. Which brings me to my first major point of the day. The, the, the breakdown. I have a hard point that I need to make for all of us. Now, I have a book that comes out next year where I basically take 250 pages to explain this point. But I believe that our problems and our solutions are all a direct result of either our strategic organizing failures or our strategic organizing successes. And we like to oversimplify our problems sometimes as good versus evil. And emotionally, that may feel right. And I'm not even saying it's false. But I'd like for you to consider today that our victories and defeats are more tied to who is doing the best job organizing themselves. Let me explain what I mean. Right now, all over the country... I see the outrage against the new legislation that passed in Georgia and Alabama, and that outrage is real and it's fierce, and I understand it. But what I too often see is that our organization does not match our outrage. But with conservatives, their organization frequently outpaces their outrage. In other words, they are more organized than they are outraged. And often we are more outraged than we are organized. Three years ago, when Republicans had the foresight to refuse to allow Obama to nominate a Supreme Court justice, they did so not just with Roe versus Wade in mind, but they did so knowing that states like Georgia and Alabama would pass the laws like they've just done. They understood that was coming. Listen, I lived in Georgia for nearly 20 years, and in many ways I still see Georgia as my home. I Moved to Georgia all the way back in 1997 to go to Morehouse College. Uh, My children, three of our children were born there. I was married there. I really became a man there, bought our first home there. And when I tell people that Republicans in Georgia out-organize Democrats, they get pissed. Because the truth is that in this past midterm election, in so many ways, the governorship was indeed stolen from Stacey Abrams. 
And so when I say, well, Democrats are out-organized, folk get pissed, and I understand. But do you know how it was stolen? It was stolen because the man she ran against was also the Secretary of State in charge of elections. And the truth is, whether we want to accept it or not, he organized, campaigned, and won that role. And what he did with it, yes, was deeply unethical, but he was able to do what he did, purging voter rolls, making it more difficult to vote, causing there to be lines that were outrageously long. He was able to do all of that because he ran and won an election in Georgia for secretary of state. And we should be dominating these secretary of state elections in all 50 states Because I always hear us say how much we care about voting rights. We are outraged, frustrated, angered, pissed off when people infringe on our voting rights. But we're not organizing to get them on the same level that we're outraged. Am I making sense to you? And right now, where we should be focusing and asking ourselves, what are the positions that we should be running for? Where are the available secretary of state roles? We're so focused on the presidency that we end up losing local elections that really matter. Even in Georgia, after Stacey Abrams lost, they had a runoff for the secretary of state position. And the Democrat got an opportunity to win. After after Stacey Abrams lost, they had a runoff for the secretary of state position and the Democrat lost. People just didn't turn out. It wasn't even that close. In Alabama, every single person who voted in the, in the legislature to effectively ban abortion, and they voted to ban it even in the case of rape and incest, even if the fetus is unviable. Every single person who voted for that in Alabama was a white man. And guess what? They were able to do that because white men alone have the majority in Alabama's legislature. And virtually the same is true in Georgia. In Alabama... If a 13-year-old girl was molested by her father or even by a violent stranger and is pregnant because of that, in Alabama, if the governor signs this new law that passed the state house, their law now states, by law, that 13-year-old girl who was molested has to have the baby. And what I'm saying to you is that these bills are now being rammed through because conservatives know that they control not only their state legislature— but they know that they control the governorship and also the presidency and now the United States Supreme Court. And we can tell ourselves in a hundred different ways that people bullied and cheated their way into power everywhere. And I'm just here to tell you that we have to be more specific and more strategic and more organized with our goals and priorities. Because I get the feeling that we think standing on the side of good is enough to win. And it isn't. It just isn't. I wish it was. But you can be good and lose and lose and lose again. And in so many ways, that's what we're doing right now. And I see it happening again in the United States Senate. Democrats actually lost seats in the Senate in 2018. And in states where they could have gained seats and where they could gain seats right now, like Texas or Georgia or even in Montana, where each of those states have some Democrats that are very, very popular. Those Democrats have instead decided not to run for Senate, but to run for president or to not even run at all. And what that's going to mean is that even if Democrats beat Trump in 2020, 
which isn't a sure thing. They still won't control the Senate. And if they lose and don't control the Senate, Donald Trump will have four more years of Supreme Court picks and four more years of cabinet picks because those things have to be approved by the Senate. And even if he loses, if Democrats don't take control of the Senate and they just have a Democratic House and a Democratic presidency, they'll get next to nothing done if they don't have the Senate. And I need to close today with this thought. And I don't mean to demean some of the efforts that I see happening right now, like one effort that is advising women to host a sex strike where they refuse to have sex until bills like the ones in Alabama and Georgia are reversed. Or I see another group putting forth a huge amount of effort to get certain phrases trending on Twitter. And I respect those efforts because they give people a sense of power and a sense of agency. But those efforts won't change the legislation. They won't change the votes. They won't. They may excite the base. And listen, that's needed sometimes. But we need more than that. We need plans and strategies to win local races, state races, and Senate seats. And right now, to keep it real, I'm just not seeing enough of it. Break it down. Thank you all for making it all the way through this episode of The Breakdown. And if you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, listen, we'll be right back here every single weekday. We'll be right back here tomorrow breaking down important news stories and issues. And we'd love for you to subscribe on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Now, please, if you can, share this podcast with your friends and family because our next big goal is to get to 100,000 subscribers and we just won't get there without you. Have you left a review yet? On Apple Podcasts, we're getting close to 6,000 five-star reviews, but we're aiming for 10,000. So we still want to hear from you. So please, when you get some time, leave your best review. Thank you, of course, to the nearly 30,000 founding members of the North Star, whose generosity even makes this podcast possible. We love and appreciate each of you so very much. Now, if you love this podcast and you want to support our work, or you want to see the show notes and transcripts for each episode, we'd love it if you consider becoming a founding member of our community. And you can do that today at thenorthstar.com. There we not only have our podcast, but we have hundreds of original articles and stories and commentaries from some of the leading scholars and thinkers and journalists in the world. Lastly, we want to give a shout out to our associate producer, Lissandra, and our podcasting director and senior producer, Willis, for their hard work on this and every episode. And I want to give a special shout out to Richard, who's one of the editors at the North Star, who makes sure that this transcript uh, is always edited and provided for all of our deaf and hard of hearing members. Thank you, Richard, for your hard work. Take care, everybody. For all you foodies out there, I'm unwrapping a McDonald's steak, egg, and cheese bagel. Ooh, look at this steak. And the juice running down the side. Got a little bit on the wrapper here. Mmm. And then the fluffy egg and real cheese folded over the side looking just so good. Mmm. Mmm. Grilled onions and a butter bagel, too. Thumbs up for McDonald's steak, egg, and cheese bagel for breakfast. Love it. Mmm. Ba-ba-ba-ba. I participate in McDonald's.